So, um, how's the sound? Can you hear me in back? Great. So we have a new design element. (laughs) And um, it came to our minds, actually, Irina and I just had a short conversation that we actually should have this at every retreat. Um, But we have this because it's National Coming Out Day today. And so it just seems so synchronistic to, um, to acknowledge that. And so there were, as soon as um, Stephen actually emailed me this morning and said, did you remember? And I said, I didn't. And so then I started uh, um, asking, you know, is there a rainbow flag at Spirit Rock? And so all these emails were flying around between staff. You know, it went, it went 360, you know, find a rainbow flag. And, and uh, we didn't find one, so Stephen brought ours up. And, um, uh, and so it feels so, you know, good that the theme of the retreat of coming home, um, coming home on, on coming out day, um, in order to come out, there has to be a sense of confidence and trust that we can come out. And there also has to be an awareness that there is something to come out of. And I have to admit that for decades of my childhood and adolescence, I wasn't aware that I could come out, even though I knew that I was different. And that um, uh, it took me a long time to come into this awareness that, that I could come out of this uh, place of suffering. And even when I did come out, and for, I don't know how for, for those of you, um, everybody is different, Um, but my process was really incremental. And so, you know, I came out to one person and then two people and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, to the whole world at once. And so I I eventually came out to most of my close friends and even my family, but not my parents. And everyone in my family who supported me in in many ways. But everyone in my biological family said, they don't need to know. They don't need to know. And, um, and so I believed them. But in a way, I was still being placed in a closet. I still was not living into who I was. And, um, and so... Uh, Eventually, I, I, I um, uh, disagreed with all that advice and, and actually coming out to my parents was an incredibly transformative experience over these past decades. And it just is so poignant for me to reflect on that as reflecting on, on coming out day that... that um, that growing up and feeling safe during that period of development as a, 
not just as a, as a gay man, but as a human being, was not so simple. When external conditions create so many avenues of exclusion and separation and isolation and pain, And then there is the, because of the repetitive nature of the external messages, there's an internalization of those messages, right? There's a belief, there's a, there's a, there's a, you can call it confusion, but it's when the external messages become my internal messages of, of my own self-judgment, my own self-hatred, my own uh, self-denial or, or, or neglect. And whether it's a culture that creates laws that treat us or our relationships as, as different or less than or a, a family that refuses to see us or accept us as who we are or a workplace that overlooks abuse of our experience. You know, this separation, the pain of this separation between um, our, our experience and those of uh, the larger culture is very real. And as Arena was pointing out in her talk, even the current discourse is still so hostile and violent. And so in that, that field that can be so alienating, even the best teachings and practices cannot be absorbed without the right conditions. And in searching for these conditions that would promote my own growth, my own search, as each of you has searched for happiness or satisfaction or freedom. It was, it was these culturally specific retreats that were the open doors into my practice. That in so many other practice opportunities, I didn't really hear my story. I didn't really see myself reflected in, in the, in the, um, teachings or the way that um, the Dharma was being offered. I didn't hear about my relationships. I didn't hear about my issues. And so I thought it wasn't for me. And at the time there were no retreats for communities of color. So when I came through this particular retreat, it was I knew it was such a rare experience and space to begin to feel some safety that, that my stories were reflected, that there was such an important piece of my life that was fully accepted and loved. And in that love, I could begin to relax finding refuge. So I really want to talk about coming home to the refuges and the precepts tonight. 
because it is finding refuge and safety in a, in a supportive community that is so important in deepening a spiritual practice. If we are only dealing with survival in the external world, we are defended. We have these necessary protections and, and defenses and we can't, and all for good reasons, but for also very good reasons, we can't let all of life in. And we can't be all of who we are because it's dangerous. When there is a refuge, we can begin to relax and allow our life to unfold in ways that we may not even have known. My five-year-old son likes to wear dresses, says German dad Niels Pickert. Pickert and his son live in a very traditional South German village where his son's predilection for dresses is the talk of the town. I didn't want to talk to my son. I didn't want to talk my son into not wearing dresses or skirts, Pickert says. He didn't make friends in doing that in Berlin. And after a lot of contemplation, I had only one option left. To broaden my shoulders for my little buddy and dress in a skirt myself. (laughs) At first, Pickard's son was reluctant to wear a dress in public, fearing he would be laughed at, particularly by the kids in his preschool. But all that changed one, quote, skirt and dress day when he and his dad made a resident of the town stare so hard she slammed into a streetlight face first. (laughs) My son was roaring with laughter, says Pickard. The next day, he fished out a dress from the depth of his wardrobe, at first only for the weekend, later for nursery school. And what's the little guy doing now? He's painting his fingernails. He thinks he looks pretty. He thinks that it looks pretty on my nails too. He's simply smiling and when other boys, and it's always, nearly always other boys, want to make fun of him, he says, you don't dare wear skirts and dresses because your dads don't dare to either. (laughs) And that's how broad his own shoulders have become by now all thanks to a daddy in a skirt. What a beautiful example of parenting that that father is offering that safety to that child. Even if we haven't received that, it's healing to know that it exists. this relaxation into who we are. Sometimes there's a sense of relief. There is this sometimes sense of joy. Sometimes there's the injury that we haven't ever been able to explore. But underneath all of that is a beginning of a stillness a calming 
of the insidious, gnawing, deluded anxiety that we may not be part of this life. And in that calming is a more open, even tranquil state of mind heart that is allowed to emerge. And we can truly begin to be aware of the beautiful range of our life, the entire range of our life. The invitation of practice is not simply to live a life to survive. Practice offers that opportunity to live into our fullest potential, into who we really are. If you are a woman, if you are a person of color, if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you are a person of size, if you are a person of intelligence, if you are a person of integrity, then you're considered a minority in this world. And it's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere, especially in the women's and gay men's culture. It is all about how you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know when you look in a mirror and you think, ugh, I'm so fat, or I'm so old, or I'm so ugly. Don't you know that 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 is not your authentic self, but that is billions upon billions of dollars of advertisings, magazines, movies, billboards, all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself so that you will take your hard-earned money and spend it on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around shit. (laughs) And when you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you're discriminated against because of your race, your sexuality, your size, your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution. It's from Margaret Cho. And each of us, I think, has sensed that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. That there begins the possibility of, free, of healing and freedom. Gaining the sense of interconnection with ourselves and others that, that we may not have experienced before. And from a culture that doesn't always value us. So two experiences from this community. I'm a lesbian and this is the first time in my 42 years of being on the planet that I've heard a gay relationship discussed so tenderly and honestly and thoughtfully, not to mention in such a sacred space. I am deeply moved and sobbed tears of joy in finding my people and my place and a path that works for me. But also the sorrow of all those years of wandering and feeling somewhat lost. The bitter sweetness of this life that 
our awareness allows us to appreciate instead of turn away from. In the company of heterosexuals, I am always to some extent on guard. I'm old enough that when I came of age, being queer was still listed as a mental disorder. Boys in my high school used to boast of going and rolling the queers. With a few precious exceptions, sex was something desperate and dangerous and done with someone you didn't know. I looked nowhere I looked. Nowhere were there any positive messages or role models. A person doesn't just get over growing up like that. I have dealt with debilitated self-esteem and depression all my life. So in the retreat last weekend, I experienced a momentary thawing of my frozen heart that I am quite sure would not have happened in a general retreat. It was so beautiful to me to be in in the company of other queer folks having each humbly come to practice. And this huge lump of unprocessed pain began to move. I have work to do and I will seek out queer Buddhist environments to do it in. This is the transformation of our lives towards freedom. This is the inclination of ourselves over and over again towards freedom instead of suffering. We begin this transformation by creating a home and a sense of safety that we can all belong to. And if we ever forget where to begin, we begin with the refuges. I think that I mentioned in the, in the opening night that whenever we invoke the refuges, whenever we sit, someone is always invoking those refuges at the same time. Just to prove it to you, on my insight timer, well, maybe the signals are not gonna work. Oh, maybe the signal's too slow. Well, we'll see. There were 67 people meditating about 10 minutes ago. Oh, 65. (laughs) The refuges of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. The possibility the possibility of freedom that the Buddha was the archetype for, the role model, that there is the possibility of freedom from the first noble truth. That transformation begins at home with our individual lives, our very lives. That in spite of whatever external conditions that might diminish us, that we belong here in this practice, in this life, and in this world, and that the possibility of freedom and kindness resides in us too. He has this beautiful parable of this immense ocean, and there's a circular ring 
that's floating through the ocean in eternity. And uh, in the seas is swimming this giant sea turtle. And every thousand years, the sea turtle comes up for air somewhere in this ocean. And the preciousness of this life that we have been, the, that we have been born, the chances of being born in this precious human life is the chances of this turtle coming up for air once every thousand years and poking his head through the ring that's floating in this immense sea. It is that rare to be born into this precious life. So what I get from that story is that he didn't say that one gender is more precious than another. He didn't say that one culture or race is more precious than another. He didn't say that straight folks were more precious than queer folks. He didn't say that people who have more power are more precious than people who have less. He didn't say that less angry people are more precious than people who have anger. He simply said that all beings born as human are so very precious because we have this capacity to awaken in this life. That none of us are left behind because there is no behind to leave. That there is only the possibility of freedom in this moment with this mind and this heart. And in that possibility that he was the archetype of, there is the path, the refuge of the teachings, the refuge of the Dharma. And I know that many of you may have different spiritual traditions, so I don't want to, you know, as I, I have said in some of my small groups that that I don't believe that Buddhism has a monopoly on enlightenment. I think really they're all, you know, um, uh, uh, ways of, of reaching the same mountaintop. And the languaging of certain traditions has been exclusionary for us as queer communities. So in the 38 volumes of the Pali Canon, representing these particular teachings, there is no Leviticus 2013. <laughs> there, and I was going to read it, but I actually don't feel that I need to hear words that, you know, uh, that I don't need to internalize. But there are no prohibitions around lay people and sexual relationships the Buddha was really pithy and succinct. He didn't say, he only said what he needed to and didn't say what he didn't need to. And, you know, I think that there is a, um, that, th that this is shown in, in the non-colonized Asian cultures because most of the non-colonized Asian cultures, non-colonized by European culture, there are no legal prohibitions. 
because the spiritual construct of those cultures didn't have those prohibitions. It's very interesting. So that there is, there are these teachings that have been followed by billions of people. If you question whether this path is for you and you don't, and you have some doubt, rely on the faith of these billions of people that are part of your lineage. I did a ancestor meditation recently and in creating it, I just did some projections of what ancestors are. And if you take your lineage, your parents, the two parents, grandparents, generations going back, and if you take the, the, the cultures of, of the Dharma, and you just take one person and you go back, you know, there are four generations every hundred years. If you go back a thousand years from one person, that one person is related to 2.2 trillion people. That's how many people have been through this Dharma, that have been supported in these cultures that have come to North America. And when you think of, you know, even just 2.2 trillion people, even if we're only 10%, (laughs) it's 220 billion queer people. (laughs) And you think that this practice is not for you? (laughs) Just think about that as a possibility because you are already making it your practice and your own and part of this lineage. You are already forming whatever invitations and instructions that we give into something that fits into your life. One of the last invitations of the Buddha was to be a lamp unto yourself. And the more lamps that we have in the world, the more illuminated it is from the shadows of our unconsciousness. And none of this we have to do alone because there is the refuge of community, of Sangha. It's actually so incredibly difficult to do it alone. I mean, if you think about trying to do the retreat schedule at home, how many of you would be able to consider doing that for seven days? And yet, even in the silence, the support of all of us together, you know, the sum the, the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts. And part of the conditioning that, that we work against is this, you know, this, this peculiar conditioning that we have in our mainstream culture that, that it's better that we do it alone or that we think we should do it alone. And if we don't do it alone, that something's wrong. And what's usually wrong is us. 
but this, fun, this intention of practice is fundamentally based on our interconnection, on our interdependence. When the Buddha formed the structure of, the, um, uh, of his spiritual community, he, he formed it with this interdependence between lay and monastic, um, uh, uh, the lay and monastic practicing communities. That they weren't separate, that the monastic container for both nuns and, and, and monks offered the teachings to the community, but every day they walk for their food. At dawn they they take their bowls and they walk for their food because they're not allowed to cook for themselves. They're not allowed to buy food for themselves. They're not allowed to store food overnight because the community supports them in that way. They're that dependent upon each other for their sustenance. It's not about going to a cave and meditating and becoming enlightened. It is about being in community. And so in the silence, we weave this sense of community that is far greater than words or, or um, our, um, our discursive relationships we begin to get to notice the person sitting next to us. We begin to get to know that person through the rhythm of their breath, through the color of their socks. This is, this is intimate now. This is information that usually we get only from our partnerships. And we begin to extend this intimacy beyond our partnerships, beyond our closest circles. And this awareness practice becomes an experience of community that we can bring into our household or lives. to also say that we're not just talking about one community, but all of our communities. And that in, your, in the circles that you move in, or even in this room, there may be people that you know really well, that you're really close to, that, you, that there may be people that you don't know. There may be people that you like, there may be people that you really don't like. But there is still an underlying reason and connection that we are all here, regardless of those external differences. And that is the common intention to create more kindness and less suffering in our lives. There is no motivation that is more needed in this world. 
regardless of the different lives that we bring, life experiences that we bring into this room. This is another expression of anatta, of non-self, that we are practicing for so much more than just who we are. This is not the experience of just the small sense of self. There is an underlying intention and vision that connects all of our differences. And that is so worthy of our relationship. Because relationship itself is such a powerful force of transformation. Without this aspect of of being in relationship, of being in connection with you, when the differences and sometimes difficulties arise, it's so easier to fragment. It's so easier to push away those differences and run to the safety of our similarities. But if I'm in relationship, there is something, there's a safety net that actually holds both the joys and the sorrows of being in community. Relationship is not a special condition that we reserve for our loved ones or our families or our close friends. Relationship is an act of loving kindness to be extended to every being without exception. Not to forget the humanity of the people that we engage with regardless of what is arising. And that's why um, sometimes when uh, we're talking about practice, the phrase comes up that the precepts are the practice. Because it's the precepts that really allow us to be together. Suzuki Roshi, who is part of the Zen lineage, um, I'm going to paraphrase, said something like, he doesn't look at whether you actually understand the precepts or not. He looks at how you are with each other. How we live with each other. Our mutual intentions of living together in a respectful and loving community. Dr. King writes, I can never be what I ought to be unless you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. That is the way God's universe is made. That is the way it is structured. So I just wanted to read a version of the precepts. We talked about the precepts in the opening night, but I'd actually like to invoke them formally. And the language um, is derivative from Manzanita Village, which is um, a um, center in Southern California created by two teachers of our queer community, Michelle Benzeman Mickey and Catriona Reed. And so the first precept is aware of the violence in the world and the power of a peaceful heart 
I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations to undertake the training to refrain from killing or committing violence towards other living beings. I will attempt to treat all beings with compassion and loving kindness. Aware of the suffering caused by theft and greed, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations to undertake the training to refrain from stealing and from taking that which is not freely given. I will attempt to practice generosity and will be mindful of how I use the world's resources. Aware of the abuse and harm of sexual misconduct in the world, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations to refrain from using sex in ways that are harmful to myself or to others. For this retreat, I will hold the beauty and power of my sexuality as an internal experience for the safety of myself and others. Aware of the suffering caused by harmful speech, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations to undertake the training to refrain from lying, from harsh speech, from slander, and from idle speech, and to endeavor to speak at the right time with truthfulness, gentleness, goodwill, and intentions of benefit. For this retreat, I will rest in the noble silence that creates safety for each of us to explore our own journey. And the fifth precept, aware of the suffering caused by substances which create unconscious craving, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations to undertake the training to refrain from misusing intoxicants that dull and confuse the heart and mind. I will set my intention always to cultivate a clear mind and an open heart. Their practices they're practices that we're invited to experiment with, to, to, to um, weave into our life. I love what uh, Lee, uh, Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who was one of the Thai meditation masters of the last century, he says, precepts are like protection, like wearing clothing. If you find that you accidentally break a precept, you can always come back to them. Wearing torn clothing is better than wearing no clothing at all and walking in the world naked. I love that because there's a way in which we, it, it just acknowledges our humanity that of course we're going to make mistakes. Of course these precepts, even though they sound so, you know, like, of course I don't want to do that. But life is a lot more complicated than that, than right and wrong. 
trying to self-edit right now. I guess I'll, where I'll, 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 I'll just share right now that, that this practice is, um, is a continuing practice. That we don't just um, learn about them, but that we're always learning about them. I had this experience just two weeks ago that um, I happened to be a little OCD about you know, my, my work. And I'm, I'm very detail-oriented, and I get caught in it very uh, sometimes. And, um, and so when I feel that I'm doing all that I should be doing, but nobody else is really doing it, I feel kind of victimized, and I get frustrated, and there's some feelings that come up. And when I'm in that state of feeling, of frustration, or that... Um, that I'm the only one that's doing all the work, I can get really unconscious. And so I said something to a coworker that really was dismissive because I didn't feel that my needs were getting met at, in that moment. But I was caught in this experience of I. And I couldn't see beyond my own emotional state or whatever, you know, I had, I had great justifications for feeling the way that I was feeling and I couldn't see it. And I said something that I read the email the next day and I said, damn, if I had received that email, my feelings would have been hurt. And I wrestled with it because it would have, it's an email. The person lives, you know, in another state. I could easily have gone into some kind of subtle denial and just say, okay, I'll just wait. And it was a struggle to own up to this aspect of breaking, or not breaking, well, breaking is, is uh, I'm not sure that I would use that word, but, but crossing, uh, you know, uh, um, kind speech. And so, as soon as I decided to ask for forgiveness, there was this huge lift, weight that was lifted off of me. And it took, it took a while um, to get in contact with that person, which means that I knew I was right. I did hurt that person's feelings in that state of unconsciousness. And I learned the next time that I have this ability to be aware even when I'm caught. But I wanna, so that's when, that's, that's when um, I'm, I'm learning by my mistakes. But I just wanna end with um, a story or two um, 
about living these precepts from a place, from a different place that I'm also learning about. And it's a story about my mom who um, turned 96 last month. And um, she is part, she lives in an independent living facility. So uh, uh, there's a community and it goes into different levels of care. Um, And she's part of a knitting circle. And these women, these uh, elderly women, uh, knit these little blankets that they give to Kaiser Hospital who gives them to the newborn babies um, in the maternity ward. And um, there are about eight women and they knit a blanket every 10 to 14 days. And every week my mother brings six because she's very adept at knitting. And so uh, she's been doing this for a couple of years now. And um, uh, about, I don't know, three weeks ago, um, uh, she said to me just casually, you know, I haven't been bringing all my blankets to the group because I haven't really wanted to show up the other people. And um, some of you know this story because I put it on my Facebook. Um, And uh, I said, well, so how many blankets are you, do you have? And, and she said, well, I actually have a surplus. <laughs> and I hadn't, I hadn't heard her use that word since, you know, she described World War II, you know? <laughs> so she brought out her blankets and we started counting them. And there were 150 blankets <laughs> in her closet Every single blanket had a different pattern. And, um, and she didn't want to hurt these, the feelings of these women. And so we made arrangements with Kaiser directly to make the donation. <laughs> and we had so much fun, you know, looking at these blankets, sort of enjoying uh, this whole you know, having this, it wasn't a joke, but there was a joy in her purity of intention that, that um, it's the flip side of the refraining part of the, of the precepts. It's, it's the, the kindness of not wanting to hurt these other women. It's the generosity of this creative energy and service that she just, you know, was doing every day. And, you know, she was kind of saying, I liked having all those blankets and looking at them and, and at a certain point realizing that, you know, she was a little greedy about uh, keeping them. And it was just a learning experience that the precepts themselves don't have to be these admonitions or these restrictions or these rules. That there is this place that we can mm, enjoy our lives because they're so good. Wholesome. Uh, 
I usually end my talks, some of you have, have, have heard my talks before, and I usually end with some incredibly inspirational story from some extraordinary human effort that, that you know, emerges from adversity into freedom. I mean, that's, I'm being transparent with you. <laughs> I'm being transparent with you because that's kind of my teaching style. I like it. I mean, it's what has worked for me when I hear those stories. But, you know, as I was actually working with this, with, with this topic, I really wanted to come up with this ordinary story to end with around, you know, knitting blankets for babies because, because really the Dharma is everywhere, in everyone, in all of you. And the invitation is to find those stories about yourself and others and really hold them in your awareness because they are as precious as your own life. So if you need the support in the next few days of this retreat, the invitation is to come home to these refuges and precepts, these places of safety and this, this for, these forms of protection and ground yourself in the deep knowing that, that this freedom of mind and heart is possible in this life. That there's a well-trodden and tried and true path towards this vision of freedom. And that we are never, never alone when we walk this path. Many thanks for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.